to John uh, 15, please. And we're going to look at, uh, we're going to read through the first 16 verses of John 15. So we're in a little season now where we've finished Galatians. So we're just doing some different standalone preaches. So next Sunday, uh, Vahe's going to preach. So different people are going to preach at different times. And so I just wanted to preach out of John 15. I think we're going to particularly look at one verse. There's so many sort of standout verses you could speak on in this passage. But um, there's something in particular I'd love us to look at. But John 15, if you haven't got it, it's going to come up on the screen in a moment. Um, and we're going to read the first 16 verses. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, to his friends. He keeps calling them friends in this passage. And he has something very important to communicate to them. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where there's something in particular you want to say to people. You know, like normally there's this conversational moments, but then there are certain moments where you go, I have to communicate this thing to this person, right? This could be a friend, could be a colleague. It could be something you're about to go off on the holiday and you've got to leave some work with a colleague. You go, I know you need to know these things, right, before I go. It could be your, if you have children, it could be a child. Depending on the personality and temperament of the child, depends on how receptive they are to that particular piece of information that you want to download, as I, in my experience, one of our kids, one of our, I had a dad talk with one of our kids and they just, yeah, they were really receptive. Another one of our kids will often say to me, before I start, they'll go, they sense it and they go, Dad, is this one of those dad talks? <laughs> how long is it going to ta- How long is it going to take? <laughs> Which basically means I'm not interested. Well, hopefully they are interested. But is this a dad talk? So Jesus is having one of the dad talks, okay, in John 15, and he is downloading some stuff. He's like, I need you to know, and he says a bunch of stuff. So here's what he says: I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, but every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. (laughs) So Jesus is saying some pretty significant stuff, right? That we constantly try to somehow, you know, navigate around. But basically, you can't bear any fruit unless you remain in me. You can do nothing apart from me. Which is a bit of a sobering statement on our lives, right? If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, it's interesting, he talks about my words remaining in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one other than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you 
so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command, love each other. So I want to particularly focus on verse 16. I and mean, we could probably spend, you know, from now till Christmas, just going through those first 16 verses of John 15, right? But I want to look at verse 16, where Jesus says these words, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I've appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And I just want to put out some things that he's saying to us, because this is one of those moments where he is trying to download to us some very, very significant truths. Basically, the whole passage, he keeps talking about, you're my friends, I call you my friends. He keeps using that word, you're my friends. And he talks about the importance of remaining, how you can't bear fruit without him. But then he uses these phrases, you didn't choose me, but I choose you. Now, we're not going to get into the whole theological debate today about election and predestination and all that stuff. Fundamentally, I believe that we respond to God because he's revealed himself to us. There is something of God's initiative to us. He brings us from death to life, okay? But clearly, humanly, there's also a sense in which you respond as well. How you put those two things together is a theological mystery, all right? But clearly, you read Romans 8 and other passages. The New Testament clearly teaches, as far as I can read it, that we are saved because God reveals himself to us. He brings us from death to life. And Jesus says here, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Now, Theologically, you're going to go, okay, yeah, I can see that. The New Testament appears to teach that. But experientially, the disciples would have been there going, well, I'm not sure that's entirely true, Jesus. Because although there are passages in the gospel where Jesus calls people, goes up to Peter, come, follow me, Andrew. They leave everything they follow. There are other people like Andrew. Um, sorry, yeah, so Peter's called. But others appear just to simply respond to Jesus without anybody calling them. They just kind of get up. They follow as well. They kind of go along. And in one sense, Jesus calls people and chooses them and calls them. But actually, humanly at times, the disciples are clearly also choosing to follow because there are other disciples who choose to leave. Yeah, there are moments where it goes, this teaching is too hard for me. I'm off. So it's a, this whole thing is a little bit of a mystery where Jesus is saying, I choose you. You didn't choose me. But also there are passages in the Bible where it appears that people do choose him. What is he saying and why is he saying it? Well, John Piper is quite helpful in this passage because he goes, think about it in reverse. If Jesus said, I didn't choose you, you chose me. <laughs> if, you said that, if you said that to someone, if I was going off to do something and Sock said, hey, hey, listen, I'll come along with you. You know, now I wouldn't say this to Sock because Sock's a very nice man. But if I was to say to him, listen, Sock, I, I didn't ask you to come. You, you came along, right? You, you chose to come with me. Effectively, I'm kind of going, I'm not committed to you staying with me. You've chosen to come with me, which is fine, but I didn't ask you, I didn't choose you. That's what happens. So when Jesus goes, you didn't choose me, I chose you, what is he saying? He's saying, fundamentally, this is my idea, (coughs) this was my plan, this was my initiative, you're with me because I chose for you to be with me. In other words, I am completely committed to you. That's what he's trying to say, I think, in John 15. He's, he's saying, look, you're my friends, and I want you to understand the basis of our connection is not because ultimately you chose me. It is because I decided to have you. And everything else you read in this chapter should be read on the basis of understanding that he's saying, this was my idea, not yours. Yeah? 
I am totally committed to what I'm saying to you. Because we can read John 15 and go, oh man, I've got to... I've got to work this out. I've got to make sure this works. I've got to get my life right. And in one sense, we do have responsibility for our own life. Absolutely. But undergirding all of it, Jesus is going, I'm totally committed to helping you work this out. Because this wasn't your idea. This was my idea. Yeah? So I guess we all know what it's like not to be chosen for something. Yeah? I don't know, what, I don't know if this happens in other nations around the world. But in England, where I grew up, in, when we did PE at school... I might have asked this question before, but did you ever have that thing where the, the PE teacher would pick captains and then they would pick who they wanted on their team? Anybody else had that horrible PE moment? Oh, it's just such a, I mean, what, where did they learn that? I mean, it's like a, just a kind of methodology for kind of like scarring children who are not good at sport, right? Because it was always the same poor kids who are at the end who didn't get chosen. And that's a horrible feeling not to be chosen, right? The reverse, though, is it's great when you are chosen. Because when you're chosen, you feel seen. When you're chosen, you feel valued. You feel important. Jesus keeps choosing and valuing and seeing people that no one else will see and value and choose. He keeps doing it. But fundamentally, I think in John 15, when he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you, what he's saying is, I am totally committed to working this out in your life. Because it wasn't your idea. So some of us have been fortunate enough to grow up in families of faith, Christian faith, right? And that is a hugely privileged, that's my background, okay? Not all of us, but that's my background. Sometimes the challenge of that, although it's a huge privilege and I wouldn't trade it, is you can wonder, have I adopted this faith just because of my parents? Have I somehow just, you know, been swept into it? And Jesus is saying, no, this wasn't, this wasn't your idea. <laughs> it wasn't your idea it wasn't your family's idea this is my doing in your life you didn't choose me I chose you and I'm completely committed to working it out so he says you are chosen so important that we get that right here's the second word because I've chosen and I've appointed you okay the, that word appointed comes with a slightly different edge to it Okay, because it's all about purpose. It's all about the, the reason. It's not just chosen to be in the family. You are chosen with purpose. And we live in a world, don't we, which is desperate for some degree of purpose. You know, people live their lives looking for something to extract some purpose from. Either they invest it all in their own kind of gratification and hope that a huge amount of hedonism will give them what their soul most wants and they discover it really doesn't. Or they invest their life in some kind of great cause, hoping that that will give them what they most want. And that, there's a degree of truth in that because we're made to live for something beyond ourselves. Right? So that you can see why people go there. But Jesus is saying, I have chosen you with purpose. In other words, there are things I want you to do in your life. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are God's workmanship. That word is poema. It literally means like a work of art. You know, you are his workmanship. He is working on you, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So that there is a purpose to our lives. So you're not just saved and added just so you're saved and added. Okay? I am, I'm brought into the family with purpose. He has something he wants to do in me and through me. So Jesus says to his disciples... 
Freely you've received, now freely give. Which I love that as he sends them out. You've received freely, now freely give. That's how the kingdom works. You're to be a conduit. Yeah, in the UK, they have little houses, roads of houses called cul-de-sacs. You know, the road doesn't go anywhere. They're very safe places for kids to play in because there's no cars. But basically, they're boring places because there's no traffic. There's nothing interesting that goes on other than kids kind of play games there, which is all very nice. But you're not meant to be a cul-de-sac. You're not meant to live boring lives where we're just a cul-de-sac of God's blessing in our lives. What he's given to you is not just for you, and it's not just for me. So what that means, though, is this. If there are things in our lives, therefore, which are holding us back from living a life of purpose, we have to ask the question, what are the things that are holding us back? In other words, if we live our entire Christian life in survival mode, now there are seasons of survival, by the way, when you go through difficult times, I totally get that. But if our entire Christian life is one of simple survival and never really stepping into being a blessing to the people around us, you go, well, what is it that's holding me back? What are the things which are stopping me from growing and stepping into some of the purposes he has for me? So I'm reading a book at the moment. Uh, I'm rereading a book by a guy called Pete Scazzaro. He's written a, a series of books, but it's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Anybody else read this book? Okay. It's quite an influential book. He's written another, a series of other books around it. And the basic premise of this book is that when you become a Christian, you are saved, you're forgiven, you're justified, all that kind of legal and your forgiveness, your position before God is, before God is right. Absolutely. But there are still scars that we carry from the past that can impact how we live our lives. In other words, at the cross, not all the healing comes at that moment. The forgiveness comes, the sense of justification, the sense of all those things are absolutely established. But it does not mean that there is an emotional baggage from our past. And he's, he basically teaches, and a lot of people who kind of like would align with this view, that therefore there are things from our past that we have to address in order to get free. And basically he, he argues that we can only mature spiritually to the degree that we mature emotionally. Okay? Which is a very provocative statement, but I think there's some truth in it. Yeah? So we can know a lot of doctrine and a lot of theology. We can serve hard in the church. All great things, right? But if we are carrying this pain that means that we have a certain way of reacting in situations, we have a certain degree of insecurity from that thing, and it might be absolutely understandable because we were completely the victim of that moment, but God wants us to get free of that so that we can grow into who he wants us to be. So if we are not stepping into the purposes that we know he has for us, we have to ask the question, why? So I was away with Attila and our, our son Joel this week for a few days. He took us up some bits, bits of mountains, which was a lot of fun. But I was reading this book and I'm writing in my notebook, what are the areas in my life where I am carrying some pain from the past? Because I am not immune to this either, right? And if you were here when Wendy was here, that's kind of touching on some of the stuff that she was talking about as well. There are things. 
So we have to ask that question. If I'm not stepping into, are there things that are literally holding me back that the Holy Spirit wants to bring us to our minds and get us through and free from? So we're called with purpose. And then Jesus says this, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you as my idea. And I've appointed you. And he says, to bear fruit. In other words, to be fruitful. And obviously those first 16 verses of John 15, he keeps talking about fruitfulness. So the appointment over your life is to be fruitful. Now, the truth is, we don't always feel very fruitful, do we? There are seasons that we feel barren. Okay, And there are actually, if you read through the Bible, there are seasons where God allows us to go through seasons of barrenness as well. Desert experiences. The Psalms are full of them. Okay, but I'm not sure that's supposed to be our entire experience. Well, I don't think it is supposed to be our entire experience. But we can feel our lives are small and hidden and at times ineffective. And in worldly terms, our lives might appear small and they might appear hidden and they may not seem very significant. But kingdom significance is measured in a completely different way to the way the world measures significance. So different, in fact, that we find it very difficult to get our heads around it. We are completely intoxicated with the way the world views significance, with the way the world thinks about success, where the world thinks about importance. We are, I would say, probably all of us completely intoxicated by that view. And the kingdom view of significance and fruitfulness is entirely different to the world's definition. Now, this is something that I've had to think a lot about in my, in kind of in my life, particularly in the last 20 years. So previously, Sarah and I, as many of you know, were in London and I worked for a church there as we both did, but I worked with the guy who led the church. And as the church kind of grew and got bigger, we kind of grew in our leadership to the point that we, you know, we had a very small staff to begin with. We had a very large staff at the end, but I was always the number two person, right? And the thing about being the number two person in a church is basically you do most of the work and get none of the kudos. <laughs> okay, you do some of the work and you get a little bit of kudos. Okay. okay, so that's how it feels when you're the number two, right? You feel hidden is how it feels. And I remember really battling with it. And the reason I battled with it is because of my own ego, basically. Not because there's anything wrong in that role, but because, because of my own ego, I'm like, I want credit for what I'm doing. I want people to know what I'm doing. I don't want to feel completely hidden behind this person. I want people to know my contribution here. Okay, that's, that's how it feels. And I remember going through this process again and again and again of I think the Holy Spirit talking to me and teaching me what does significance look like? Is significance about being known? Is it really about someone knowing what you've done, Phil? Really, does it really matter? Does, is, is that the thing? Is that what makes your life important? Is that how you measure significance? And I'm like, yes, that is how I measure significance. <laughs> and he's like, well, that's not really how you should. And we had this conversation for a number of years. Okay. And although you may not do or you might do in the future what I did, the truth is most of us have that same conversation about significance, how we measure a life that is full of success. And I had to really battle with it. And, I, and I'm not saying that that is completely eradicated in my life, but I think I've, I kind of grew to a point of accepting, do you know what, I, actually, I really do believe that's not how success is measured. <coughs> but it was definitely a process because I'm totally intoxicated with the world's view of what success looks like. And I suspect most of us are because that's, that's the ocean we swim in. 
Yeah, that's what we breathe all the time. So when Jesus talks about significance or he talks about fruitfulness, what, is, what does that look like? Okay, well, very briefly, let me just talk to you about what does he do? Because if he's our model, what kind of life does he model for us? What does significance look like? Well, this is the kind of stuff he does. He sees people that no one else sees. Yep. I remember one commentator talking about blind Bartimaeus. And they said the problem with blind Bartimaeus is not any blind, he's invisible. Because <laughs> no one wants to see him. And Jesus sees him. So he sees people no one can see. He elevates people. In other words, when he's around them, they get elevated. Something about them shifts and changes because they are around him. Yeah, he's like a multiplier, in other words. So he, he sees people, he elevates people, he invites people. That doesn't mean he's constantly inviting people. It means he just draws them into his circle all the time. The, the circle is always open. He cares for people that others don't think are worth caring about. He keeps talking about small things. <laughs> so Jesus talks about things like mustard seeds and yeast. And he keeps saying that really small things have a huge impact, massive impact. The world talks about big things. Jesus goes, no, 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 I want you to talk about small things. Seeds, mustard seeds, yeast, which has a huge impact in the kingdom. He picks out people like a widow who's poor, who gives a very small amount of money and says, people are going to talk about her for, for years and years and years to come because of what she's done today. He makes statements like this in Matthew 25. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. Hungry, thirsty. I was a stranger. I needed clothes. I was sick. And you did something about those things. Truly, I tell you, I think when Jesus says, truly, I tell you, that means... You need to listen. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Well, so I guess when we ask the question, what does fruitfulness look like? There is no one answer, right? But it seems to me when you look at some of the things Jesus said and things Jesus did, there is, if you like, a common denominator, which is this. It's pretty much always about other people. In other words, the real definition of fruitfulness seems to be about whether you can give your life away or not. Most of that is about thousands upon thousands of very small decisions each day. Occasionally, it's about very big decisions and very big moments. But in the end, if you keep doing that, it means I'm no longer the center of my own story. Yeah, I want to be the center of my own story, but actually Jesus is going, oh, I want you to not be the center of your own story. If you want life, you need to give your life away. Rob Bell, if you've ever read any of his material, Rob Bell's a little bit of a controversial figure now in the kind of evangelical fucking you that word church, but he wrote a brilliant little book called Velvet Elvis, which I really liked when he wrote it. And he talks about the story of Abram and Genesis 12 and the calling of Abraham to go and be a blessing. And he talks about the church. He says, as we reclaim the church as a blessing machine why blame the dark for being dark? Is it far more helpful to ask why the light isn't as bright as it could be? And I love that phrase. The church is called to be a blessing machine. 
You see, the, the world will teach you basically that fruitfulness looks like accumulation. Get as much as you can, extract what you can. That's the pathway to a significant life. Jesus keeps on going, give what you can, love where you can, give away as much as you can. And that is the pathway to a truly big life. So if you want a really big life, you have to live a very small life, <laughs> it appears. That doesn't mean you don't do big things. It means you become small in the midst of your story, in other words. It's not about you getting bigger and people knowing all about you. That might happen. It may not. But that's not the aim. The aim, Jesus is going, is give your life away. Be a blessing machine. And that kind of life may end up looking very insignificant in the world. No one may know your name. You may live a very humble life in many ways. But Jesus says that is fruitfulness and it is fruit that will last. In other words, it has an internal significance attached to it. It will last. It is a big life. So you didn't choose me. I chose you. I've appointed you to bear fruit. Now lastly this. How do we bear fruit? Well, the first part of John 15 tells us, doesn't it? He keeps saying, remain the vine. In other words, he's saying, make Jesus the center of the story constantly. His purposes, his leading, his guidance keep coming back. That's what we've just done, isn't it? In worship, that's what we've done as we took communion. We have just come back. Okay, we come back to the table again. I was thinking as we took bread and wine, you know, every other religion will say, we put the table in the middle, you bring what you've got. You bring your stuff to the table now, and hopefully if you've done enough stuff, okay, you will be accepted. Every other religion is about bringing, somehow proving yourself, qualifying yourself. You come to the table, you bring your sacrifice to the table. Jesus says, come to my table and I will sacrifice myself for you. You come to the table to receive, not to bring what you've got. That's a huge difference between the gospel and every other world religion, is you don't come and accumulate on the table and hope that God will let you in. Jesus says, no, I've, I am sacrificing myself. Now you come to the table again and receive. Keep coming back. Keep abiding. Keep remaining. Because he allows you and makes a way for you to come and abide. So how do I abide? Well, yes, obviously, you know, we tend to think, I've got to read my Bible and I've got to pray. And those are definitely things we need to do. But fundamentally, it is about this. is about cultivating a posture of dependence, which is why I pray, which is why I read my Bible, because I'm dependent. I don't read and pray and read my Bible in order to prove something. I just pray and read my Bible because I'm cultivating a posture of dependence where we acknowledge to Jesus, I need your words, I need your life in me, I need your help, I need your guidance. And it is from there that everything else flows. And this is where I'm going to close. Proverbs 4, very famous phrase, says this, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Right? Get that decision right, everything else flows from there. Jesus with Martha and Mary. Martha's running around doing all the stuff. Mary sits at his feet. Everyone thinks that's a story about devotion or not devotion or activism. It's not a story about that. It's about taking the posture of a disciple at the foot of a rabbi. Mary sits at his feet. In other words, she's taken the posture of a follower. And Jesus goes, one thing is needed. In other words, there is one decision above all other decisions. 
If you get that decision right, where do you sit? Everything flows. Guard your heart, everything flows. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law. Why? Because he's like a tree planted by the river. In other words, get that one right. Where do you plant yourself? Where do you sit? What happens with your heart? You just can keep going, keep going. You'll find the Bible in a world of many, many options. Jesus keeps going, there is one primary choice that makes a difference to everything else. Right? It's where we sit, where we kneel, where we plant ourselves. And everything, everything flows from there. Because Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. In other words, I am completely committed to working this out in your life. So let's stand. We're going to pray. And then I think Jamini's just going to help us just to use a few songs just to respond.